Would you turn with me to a psalm I was speaking to you about two weeks ago? Last Sunday night we had Dave Boyer and had a real blessing together, but it's Psalm 119, and uh, beginning at the 81st verse, and of course each, uh, each one here, each part of this 119th psalm being the longest psalm is composed of the 26 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Each one is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, each one also, you'll notice, is uh, eight verses. Uh, so as I read this, and I think it especially has great application uh, to times of testing. And of course, I guess most of the Psalms have to do with times of testing. Uh, when you read the Psalms, you realize how much God's people are tested by God, uh, tested as to their faith, uh, to the security of it, to the realness of it. For truly, no faith is ever really known within the heart till you've been tested. As I've said many times, prosperity is no test of faith, nor is good health, nor a nice family life, or a wife that loves you, a husband that loves you. I mean, these are, these are all easy parts of our faith life. But the real testing comes when when burdens come, when trials come, whether you find the Lord sufficient in the trial. And so the psalmist in this uh, portion of the 81st and going through the 88th verse speaks of, of uh, himself and the testings of God of his faith. My soul fainteth for thy salvation. And as I said, that salvation is not the salvation of redemption. This salvation is the salvation from a problem. The word salvation is used in the two, two areas, either in the uh, salvation of the soul through Jesus Christ, the redemption in the blood, or salvation from a situation, some problem that you may be in. Here it's a problem. Here it's a condition in the psalmist's life. My soul fainteth for thy salvation. I hope in thy word. The but is in italics, you'll notice there, so it's not in the original. And uh, he quickly says, I hope in thy word, so that uh, he knows where to go. I, I think this is so important, if I can say this, to know where to go. You notice where he goes when he has a problem? Right to the word, you see. I, I often wonder how many Christians really go to the word immediately. Because I can assure you that no matter what your problems are in God's Word, there are the situations, the words that will cover your exact situation. I don't think there's any situation that isn't covered in the Psalms as to comfort, uh, a source of strength, because you find that the psalmists have been through all of these problems, and especially David in his uh, Psalms. You would find that uh, David uh, suffers in so many ways. He suffers from sin, profligate sinner. I don't suppose anybody's as bad a sinner as David here. David the king and Christ is going to occupy David's throne. Shows how Christ loves sinners and saves sinners, how God loves sinners. God makes sure we understand that it's not because David was such a good man, you see, that he occupied the throne. It was because David was a man of faith. He was a tragic man, 
getting into the deepest sins possible of both adultery and murder. This isn't uh, common, thank the Lord. But David did, and uh, David continually had to seek the face of God. He had family troubles, had trouble with his children. You'll remember after David's deep sin that God had said, the sword shall not pass from thy family. There'll be great problems in your family life. Now, I think we have to remember that even though David was told that the weight of his sin would weigh heavily upon him, that uh, the fact that he had committed such deep sin might have that effect upon other areas of his family life, and it can. And God knew this, that it would have great effect. God knew what David's sons were going to do. Absalom, others, I mean, you can look in his family life and trace it, and he did have his problems, but he never departed from God except in that time of deep sin when he forsook God and where he had to then be told by the high priest finally and how, how terrible that we have to finally be told by somebody else. He, uh, here was the sin that he had committed of murder and adultery and yet he went on without confessing his sin until the high priest comes, you see, and uses a simple allegory and says to him, says, now, uh, David, uh, if a man had one sheep and a rich man came along and plucked away that one that was his, what would you say? Or he murdered it. I can't remember exactly what it says in that portion, but the whole gist of it is this, that here was a rich man with one possession and a poor man with one possession and the rich man comes and snatches it from him. David quickly says he's worthy of death. And of course the high priest points at him and says, thou art the man. And you took Uriah's wife for yourself and you murdered Uriah. So David understood what sin was, and yet David was a man of faith. David was a man who held on to God even in the trial. He did not forsake God. Even when he had not confessed his sin, he did not forsake God. He believed in God, but he was under terrible trial and burden of soul and of heart. He was miserable until he came back to God and found the comfort of Christ. Found the very comfort, you see, that Christ, the coming Messiah, the one who would occupy his throne one day, that comfort was his portion through the Spirit of God. Comfort came to him when David confessed this sin, but not until David confessed this sin. You can't have the comforts of God until all sin is cleansed away. It must be cleansed away. There can be no possible blessing in your life. And I have to impress that upon you tonight. Because in, in any congregation of this size, we're, we're all subject to temptations. We're all subject to the things that all humans are subject to. We're not, by and large, phlegmatic creatures. We're creatures of passion. We all have this to face. We must be honest, you see, with our own souls and recognize the person we are. The possibilities there are for sin are tremendous in us. 
At certain times in life, I believe that the possibilities of sin are greater. I believe that it's made very clear that the youth should flee youthful lusts. I mean, because God recognizes youth and the drive of youth. But I would also have to say that we would have to look at all the statistics to realize that a great portion, I think the largest portion of all divorces are between the 21st and the 28th year of marriage. This is an amazing statistic. There are times of life when temptations are tremendous. And the man of God, the woman of God that is in love with Jesus Christ is to, to cling, you see, to Jesus and seek strength to go on day by day. And never to be prideful, never, you remember the word says, pride cometh before the fall. Never to be prideful, never to think we're above this thing. Oh, how many have fallen because they've thought they're above it, thought they're above some temptation, criticized or possibly castigated somebody who went through some sin, went down deep into the dregs and oh, so terribly pointed the finger at them and then find themselves in the same situation. I think uh, that Paul makes that so clear when over in Galatians 6.1, he says that very thing. He makes sure that they understand. He says in Galatians 6.1, brethren, if, if a man or a woman, young person, be overtaken in a fault. Now notice, you now show your spirituality. If you don't know how to handle it, you're not spiritual. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Why? Notice, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In other words, see, we're never excused from what other people have to face. Never excused from what other people have to face. Every temptation, remember, is common. Common. There hath no temptation you, temptation taken you, but that is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not see you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with that temptation supply what? A way of escape that you might be able to bear it. He'll open a way for you so you can get out of it. Now, I could deal at some length with this. I, I, I don't want to go too far beyond it, but I, I want to say this. The greatest sins mentioned in the Bible, of course, are sins of the flesh. There's no doubt about that. Drunkenness is mentioned, I think, uh, oh, maybe nine times, and the sins of the flesh, 39 times. Yet we're liable to look at, the, at drunkenness as, as the big sin, you know. But it's the sins of the flesh. And I, we must recognize this. We're living in a day, aren't we, where this is evident. If it ever has been evident, it's evident now, you see. And I believe that uh, when we say here, my soul fainteth for thy salvation, for thy deliverance, the psalmist is saying, get me out of this situation. And I would have to say to to every woman here that the morality of the nation, the morality of the church, and the morality of family life 
depends much upon you. More so than upon the man. Pure woman, nation with pure women have risen to great heights. Where the women fall, the nation falls. You mark the history of man and look in your history books and see what has caused the fall of nations. Look at Rome, you can look at any of them. I don't take away moral responsibility for man. He has moral responsibility. There is no double standard. The standard of purity is the same for both. But I have to say, and if I read the scriptures aright, and if I read Proverbs aright, the purity of man is greatly dependent upon the purity of a woman. I have seen the finest men, noble of character. I have seen preachers, I have seen evangelists fall to the wiles of a woman. I have to say that. And so I call upon women, every woman, every young girl. The purity of every boy you go with depends upon you upon you. And so the purity, deliverance, oh God deliver me. Let me be delivered. You want me to be frank. You want me to tell you. And the thing is that you know in your heart that these things are true. And so this salvation, deliver me. My soul fainteth for thy salvation. I hope in thy word. Well, I, I would have to say I hope in thy word. And because, remember, I use that verse all the time. You see it on all my letters. Who knows what it is? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Right? So the strength is never going to be your own. Chris and Paul know that tonight. Joni and John will know that as their children. You will all have to be in Christ. They didn't go out in their own strength. I know that. I've prayed with them many months, long before anybody else knew of it here. We've been praying, you see, long, long ago. They wanted to be in the Lord's service for how long? I think of all the times we've prayed for God to open doors. And they're going out in the strength of Christ. And so when it says, my soul fainteth for thy deliverance, we were speaking of deliverance, I hope in thy word. And thy word gives strength, thy word gives power, thy word is everything. So where do you go? You've got a problem? That's exactly what happened here in the psalmist. Where do you go with your problems? Do you go to the Word of God and say, Now I know. You know, if you don't know where to look, most of your Bibles, all you've got to do is turn the back page and it says, For saints under affliction, for saints with sorrow, for saints, and it gives you a lot of verses. Most Bibles have that right in the back. They tell you the references to go to when you have a burden, when you have a problem. But I can tell you that if you begin with Psalm 1 and just read them and meditate upon it, you'll find yourself right in there so that that word will really be applied to your heart and you'll find the comfort you need and the strength you need. And that psalm that you mentioned before, Psalm 16, Ernie, I, Ernie and I know that psalm for many years. I preached on that, oh, years ago. And I think when I preached on it, Ernie, didn't you take 16.8 for your, for your life verse when I preached on uh, Psalm 16? 
And that uh, Psalm 16, uh, in that eighth verse, says, I have set the Lord always before me, not behind me. <laughs> I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. You see, here's, here's the strength, you see. Set the Lord always before me, not just sometimes. You know, I don't sort of leave him on the side when I've got a little uh, something that maybe he wouldn't be pleased with. I have set the Lord always before me. Now, if the, if the Lord is always between you and the situation, or you and the sin, or you and the trial, anything, if the Lord is always before you, you can rest assured that he'll carry you through because he is the one who will bear the trial with you. And so, he says, I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. He never forgot the word of God. No matter how much it might, you know, we say in, an, in the New Testament, we see through a glass darkly. And I can't help but think it's something like, you know, I remember when I was a boy, we used to take a, a match, I think it was, take a piece of glass and smoke it both sides so we could look up at the sun. And then you could look at the sun, you know, and, the, and it wouldn't, the rays wouldn't come through. So you could really see what the sun looked like. We see through a glass darkly. And David says here, he's like a bottle in the smoke. Things look cloudy. Things don't look so distinct. You were radiantly happy yesterday. What's happened to you today? You've got a burden. Something's gone wrong. Lord, when wilt thou comfort me? And you know, I often allude to that portion of Paul. Incidentally, Paul and David uh, run so close together. It's amazing. If you ever read your Psalms and compare them with Paul's epistles, you will be amazed how much. These two men run side by side. Remember, Paul was a murderer. You have to remember that as Saul, he slew a lot more than David did when he slew the Christians, thinking he was doing God, a, that he was doing justice for God, slaying Christians because they were departing from Jehovah. He had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And so, uh, I, I allude often to Paul over in that portion where he speaks about the problems he had. And uh, that uh, portion is over in 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, because I allude to it, but I never read it to you, because I know some of the verses, and it's over in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had his problems. In this case, there were physical burdens. Here he wasn't a young man, a little older than I am, but I won't tell you how much, but he was, or you'd know anyway, but, but he was around 75 or 76 years of age, and he had his burdens, and of course, uh, uh, he took those burdens for exactly what he believed they were doing for him. Let me tell you, uh, the, the most wonderful thing is a trial. I don't know how I can tell you this, but it's the most wonderful thing for you if it gets you on your knees. If you're not under any trial now and you're not praying much, let me tell you something. Give you a little trial and you'll be on your knees all the time. It's a shame to say I, 
I dread saying this, but I want to tell you that it's true. It's always been true. The psalmist says this continually, that he's drawn close to God because of what's happening in his life. Anybody here who's gone through a trial knows what I mean. A kind of a burden, some sin you've committed, something. It'll draw you to God. Don't lose it, though. Get what God wants you out of it. Get what God wants you to have out of that thing, you see. Now, Paul had, had a burden, seventh verse. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Paul received many revelations, you see. Paul was the, the great minister, the great revealer of the coming of Christ for his church. Paul is the, is the great apostle. Paul is the one who speaks to us of the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. He received the revelation from God. He received many mighty revelations. He was drawn up to the third heavens. There he saw things he said that he, that he didn't want to utter because he knew if he uttered them, we couldn't believe the, the glories and the joys up there. We'd all want to leave this place and get there just as quick as we can. We wouldn't even want to labor on the earth because of what there is prepared for us. I hath not seen nor he heard the glories which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. He's given us a little taste of it so we know. The taste is within the soul. The taste is within. It's a joy, as I spoke of this morning. A rejoicing, you see. There's to be rejoicing in the heart, deep within us. This is the taste, you see. You'll never taste heaven unless you have joy here. The smallest of faith will save your soul. That's the mustard seed. The greatest of faith brings heaven to your soul. You can't have heaven with a mustard seed faith. Not here. The only way you can have heaven down here in your soul is by a mighty faith, a great faith. Then God puts heaven in your soul so Christ becomes preeminent. Christ is preeminent when heaven is in the soul. He's not preeminent while faith is at a minimal level. He's preeminent when faith is at the maximum level. And so Paul here is saying, I've received revelations that are tremendous, and lest I be exalted above my measure with the revelations I've received, that Christ was coming for his church, coming for his own. John doesn't have that revelation. John's revelation is completely different. John's revelation is of the tribulation and the coming of Christ in glory to establish the millennial kingdom. Paul receives the mighty revelation of the rapture of the church to be caught up. You see, isn't that wonderful how God breaks it down, you see? Gives Paul, the great apostle, the revelation of the second coming to take us to himself. And then to John, the revelation in the last book of the time of Jacob's trouble and then the millennial kingdom and the glorious coming of Christ to establish forever a glorified heavens and a glorified earth. So he has this. But notice, God deals with him here because he has received, as he says here, I have received the thorn in the flesh, the message of Satan to buffet me. That's what he likes to call it because the whole flesh is, in my flesh there dwells no good thing. Your flesh is no good. Your flesh by itself is, is satanic wrapped and bound. 
Jesus says to the lost, you're of your father, the devil. So that there's no doubt that this flesh is corruptible. You don't think that a body, beloved, that is like this, it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's an impossibility. Since sin came in, it's corruptible. It's mortal. Unless Christ comes and changes us, we shall all go by the way of the coffin. This flesh, Satan has sent a messenger to buffet me in the flesh. Remember, Jesus says, don't fear him that can destroy the body, Satan, but rather fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. He says, when you die, that corruption is not for me. That's sin. I promise you a glorified body. And he says, all disease, all of this came from sin and Satan's deception. Sin is not the product of God's love. It's the product of rebellious man against the will of God. And so he says, it was given as a messenger to buffet me. Notice, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, I, you know, it doesn't mean a thorn in here, all right, you know? Someone asked me that one time, where did you get the thorn? I said, I don't know. It's, it's said by some, if you read commentaries on this, and I'm not going to claim that the commentaries are always right, but they'll pick a portion in the epistles where Paul says, I know that if you could, you would have given me your eyes. And they feel that probably Paul's thorn in the flesh was the fact that he couldn't see good. The evidence of that is that in another epistle, he says, you will notice that I wrote you in very large letters, indicating that probably his sight was not good. So whether it was this or not, we, we, we will say that it's some condition of the flesh. And he said, notice what he says. Lest, he says, he, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. It's good, isn't it, how Paul knew himself. Let me tell you, good health's bad for some people. With good health, they run amok. Boy, I remember when I worked in New York, some of those fellows with the good health, how they used to tell you in the morning, I never get a Here was me, I had migraines. I didn't have to do anything and I got migraines. And they come up in the morning, you know, say, well, I get in about four this morning. And I look at them, you know, it looked like the nurse. And, I, and they say to me, and I'd say, how do you feel? I never had a headache in my life. Never had a headache in my life. And let me tell you, beloved, when you think of the thorns in the flesh, of how suffering in the Christian life many times, and I have to say that, Christians suffer many, many times, many thorns in the flesh. But Paul says, lest I be exalted above my measure. He knew that he couldn't have too good health. God knew it. He couldn't have that kind of a ready. He'd just run away. Paul was a brilliant man. 
And God knew, notice exactly what he says, lest I should be exalted above my measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, notice Paul now, most gladly. Now, I want to say something here. When I read this, I thought to myself, you know, there aren't many people like this. Notice what he says. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Isn't that tremendous? Listen, have you got some infirmity tonight? You've prayed about it. You've been praying. Paul says he prayed three times. Well, don't take that as a specific number. You don't pray three times and say forget it, you know. But Paul prayed three times. The answer was, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, lest I be exalted above my measure. I've received so many revelations that really I just feel like I could explode in joy and, and I could just shout all the time, but God keeps me humble. God keeps me on my knees. God doesn't let me get outside where he wants me and he holds me down. And he holds me down because he wants his strength to be made perfect in my weakness. That's why. Now, this takes a great heart of faith. Notice what it says. He says, I glory infirmities. Now, notice what he says in the 10th verse. Therefore, and oh boy, I take pleasure. Let me read that again. <laughs> Therefore, I take pleasure in my illnesses, you could translate that, or my infirmities. Would you please raise your hand the last time? You know, there's a good ad on television. I don't know whether you've noticed it. I noticed it a few times. Maybe you've seen it. The, I don't know who he is, but there's a fella has a bad cold. He's English. And he goes all through it, you know. And he says, you might as well enjoy your cold. Tells you exactly how to enjoy it to the full. You don't have to go to work. Sit down. Is it, what ad is it? Do you know? Is it Alka-Seltzer or one of those the things? You've seen it, haven't you? This Englishman. And he goes through the whole process, you know. Whole process. How to enjoy a cold. That's the title, you know. How to enjoy a cold. Well, here he says, I take pleasure. Would you raise your hand the last time you took pleasure, you know? You had the flu? You know, some of the greatest saints of God are like this. I think of Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby wrote a thousand hymns, blind, and filled with pain most of her life. Never got out of bed. Thousand hymns to Christ. I think of F.B. Meyer. I don't know how many of you have ever read F.B. Meyer's books, tremendous books, 
present tenses of the blessed life, future tenses of the blessed life, the books on the prophets, the books on Peter tried by fire. I sometimes have given out his book on marriage, the most beautiful book to give to those just getting married. How many people would know about F.B. Meyer? Of course, he's long since dead. It was in the 1800s, in the middle 1800s, in the late 1800s he lived. But who really knew much about F.B. Meyer? He was the most precious saint and one of the greatest preachers, undoubtedly, of that day. And yet this man, ill, and he had a wife who was a shrew. And everybody knew it. She never cooperated one little bit in his ministry, hated the fact that he had given himself to God. He loved her. He never left her. He never parted from her. He tended to her when she died. And he wrote the most beautiful books on married love that any man has written. Suffering? Yes, he suffered. He suffered. How many of you know Amy Carmichael? Have you ever heard of her? She began the great mission in India, Danavur, in Danavur, India, for orphans, ill all her life, mostly on a bed of pain. Wrote the most beautiful books. One I had here, Gold in Moonlight. Precious, let me just read it. I had laid it down here before, but just a little portion of it. This is Amy Carmichael. She never built an orphan's home. She had a home in India. She went there, and she said she just invited the orphans to come live with her. She never made it like an institution. She died in India. I know that... On her tomb, it says this, very simple. Master, where dwellest thou? And under it, come and see. Isn't that beautiful for a tomb? Come and see. Here's what she wrote. Calvary, the word pierces even to the dividing asunder. Here's this woman pain most of her life, terribly sick, doctors and unable to find out what the problem was on the mission field. Says it pierces asunder to the dividing of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It searches our love for our beloved. It discovers the quality of that love. An Indian refiner puts his glistening gold, she was in India, into a small earthen crucible he blows up the fire. The gray scum floats to the surface of the gold. The gray scum of selfishness in our human love will float to the surface of our soul and be discovered by us if we are willing to allow the refiner Christ to blow up the fire. There is a root of possessiveness about much of our human affection. My loved one is mine for myself, we say. That is the underlying thought of much that looks so beautiful. God's thought was much different. The love that our Lord asked for 
us is different. His Father's love was a giving love. Often the children in a Christian family are ready and eager maybe to follow their Lord, but the parents pull them back. Not so with the Father in heaven. A few rise to the heights of not refusing their children. And their high-water mark is expressed in such words as these, O oh, Father, help, lest our poor love refuse for our beloved the life that they would choose. And in our fear of loss for them or pain, we forget its eternal gain. She goes on and says, Have we in our refusal of the crucifix refused also the cross? We do refuse the crucifix. The sign of our faith is an empty cross, an empty tomb. He is not here, he is risen. But it is strangely possible to decorate even that empty cross, to smother it with flowers, to make it look beautiful. Even, but surely, this borders on blasphemy, to use it as just an ornament so others might think we're Christian. And yet the great law stands, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We who follow the crucified are not here to make a pleasant thing of life. We are called to suffering for the sake of suffering, a suffering sinful world. The Lord forgive us our shameful evasions and our hesitations. This from a sick heart in India way back, not in this day, but in the day when you just slept on mud floors, dying, continually dying, it seemed to all those that surrounded her. The Lord forgive us for our shameful evasions. His brow was crowned with thorns. Do we seek rosebuds for our crowning? His hands were pierced with nails. Our hands, do we seek to wring them and to bedeck them with jewels? What do we know of travail? His feet were bare and bound. Do our feet walk delicately? What do we know of tears that scald before they fall? What do we know of heartbreak? What do we know of being scorned? God forgive us for our love of ease, this woman who's sick unto death. God forgive us that so often we turn our faces from a life that is even remotely like his. Forgive us that we all but worship comfort, the delight of the presence of loved ones, possessions, treasure on earth. Far, far from our prayers too often is any thought of prayer for a love which will lead us to give one whom we love to follow our Lord to Gethsemane, to Calvary, perhaps because we've never been there ourselves and never shed a tear for anyone's soul. Lord, we kneel beside thee now with hands folded between thy hands as a child's are folded in its mother. We would follow the words of thy prayer. 
dimly understanding their meaning, but wanting to understand that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Beloved, when you think of the sorrows and the burdens and the trials that souls have had to bear, saints of God, and we think of the the cross, as she has said here, and the nail-pierced hands, and the crowned brow. And then we think of the life of ease, as she said, that we seek so often. And while his head was crowned with thorns, ah, should be rosebuds. And while his hands are pierced, ah, should be bedecked with jewels. And, and that's it. Oh, listen to me. This was a great saint of God whose name rings down through the time because of her work that's still going on in India, Donavur. Lord, when wilt thou comfort me? Well, you'll have all the comfort that you need from Christ when you submit yourself to Christ himself in every area of your life, that your joy, what, might be full. That's what Christ wants, but it's submission to him. Submission to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for thy word tonight and then the saints of God that we've thought about. Lord, how we pray for our own souls. Lord, it, it pricks our own hearts often when we think of all that our Savior bore for us, that he emptied himself, that he became sin for us, sin in all of its horror, no sin outside the scope that it was placed upon Christ, so that any man, no matter what his sin might be, coming in true faith and believing on Jesus as Savior could be redeemed when we think of what he did for us. And then, Lord, we look at our lives. Oh, Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us. May we put our hands like Amy Carmichael did, fold them in thy blessed hands, asking for forgiveness, asking the Lord to guide us day by day. May we truly submit to the will of God. Help us, Lord. The road seems long sometimes. The road seems very rough, Lord. There are difficult trials, there are burdens to bear, whether it's family life, emotional life, life in the home, the war against sin. Lord, these are the inner conflicts of the soul that no one knows about, and yet everybody here tonight has that conflict. We're not nothing in God's eyes. We're something. We're those whom he has made. We have all of this conflict within, and only Christ can give victory. Father, give us victory. Help us to be overcomers. Thou hast said our faith is that which overcomes the world. Now, Father, give this kind of faith to us. This is not a little faith. Little faith has never given much joy to any heart. Oh, it can save the soul and get us in as 
it says saved by fire, just about made it to heaven. But Lord, a great faith, a faith that's real and deep and holy can bring heaven to the soul and strengthen us for the phrase of life. Bless every heart tonight. Anyone outside of Christ, O oh Lord, draw them to thyself. We pray in Jesus' blessed name.